Well, today we continue in this summer series that will take us throughout these summer months, looking again at the um, the gems of Jesus' parable that are peppered throughout the four Gospels. And if you have your Bible with you, I'd encourage you to turn to that passage that that uh, Matt read a few moments ago in Luke chapter 14, verses 15 through 24, commonly referred to as the parable of the great banquet or the great supper. Now, this particular parable, the parable of the great supper, is the fourth in a series of four stories that Dr. Luke has included in his telling of Christ's gospel, and the fourth of which is in the, done in the context of a dinner or a meal, a supper. This particular one is uh, happening in the context of a Sabbath meal, as the scripture tells us in the opening of chapter 14, in the home of a very prominent uh, Pharisee, a leader of Jewish religion in the time of Jesus. And as was custom in the ancient world, uh, a lot of things were transacted over a meal in the breaking of the bread. Uh, That hasn't changed much over the centuries because even today we find ourselves often uh, having important uh, and tender exchanges uh, when we share meals together, break bread with one another. Uh, but it was commonplace in Jesus' day for philosophers, for teachers, for rabbis in particular, to share their wisdom, as Jesus does here, to share their wisdom over a common meal. And so in chapter 14, as Jesus and these other important Jewish leaders are gathered together in the home of this prominent Pharisee, uh, Jesus uses the opportunity to teach some important lessons. And he tells a story, a parable, a simple story with an important meaning about a landowner who gives a banquet, who throws a feast to which many people are invited. But in Jesus' story, when the banquet time arrives, apparently those who had received invitations, previously invited guests, find all kinds of lame excuses in their library of excuses about why they cannot attend this special celebration and meal. The first indicates that he has been in negotiations with the Marsha Marsh team of realtors and has bought a piece of land and apparently there's a closing going on and he can't make it. It's interesting that he could not arrange that at a different time. Uh, The meal was an important thing. He should have been able to arrange his schedule such. Another indicates that they're in an agribusiness and are uh, have just purchased uh, five oxen. And uh, I wonder if it's uh, feeding time or what that prevents him from coming. But indeed, it appears that the excuse is rather lame. The third who had been invited to come to this great banquet uses marriage as an excuse. I've just taken me a wife, he says. Now, it's interesting to read between the lines. One doesn't know exactly what prevents him from coming, whether they're still on their uh, honeymoon in Cancun or whether they are uh, his wife, just as kind of a domineering domineering individual and says, you can't go anywhere. Uh, We're newlyweds and we're staying to ourselves for the next year. So there. 
we don't know all the reasons why, but it appears that in Jesus' telling of this story uh, in this Pharisee's home, that they're all rather lame excuses. And because they could not attend, the landowner, the host of the banquet, grows very, very angry. He's incensed, and so he says, look, he says to his servant, look, all those that I've invited, let's just ditch them, let's forget them, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to go out into the streets and the alleys, and I want you to invite as many as you can find in the streets and alleys to come in and enjoy this sumptuous feast that I have prepared for them. The servant does exactly, meticulously, what the master had instructed. But when all in the streets and alleys had been invited, and they come to the table at the time of the banquet, there still are vacant places at the table. And so the master calls his servant once again and says, the streets and the, the alleys won't do it. I want you to go out into the highways and the byways. I-79 and I-90, I want you to stand by the side of the road and I want you to twist their arms, do whatever you have to do to get them to come. I have prepared a, a, a banquet, a feast that is without equal and they would be foolish not to come. You compel them. You make them come. Whatever you have to do, no empty seats at the table. And that's the story. No one who is invited, Jesus said, will eat at the table in the kingdom of God. The unstated question that lies behind Jesus' story here is this question. So what sort of person will be at the table in the kingdom of God? Now, the Jews, the Pharisees, as they heard this story, likely were thinking to themselves, well, I know who's going to be at the table. It'll be people just like us, good Jews. Good Jews who keep the law of Moses, who follow the rabbinical traditions of the elders. Good Jews who keep themselves ceremonially clean and away from defilement. And if you'd ask that crowd there on that day in that prominent Pharisee's home, and who will be excluded from the kingdom of God? Who won't be at the table? Those Pharisees would have said, well, that's very clear. Gentiles won't be at the table. The immoral won't be at the table. The greedy, the, the dishonest tax collectors won't be at the table. Those kinds of scum will not be in God's coming kingdom. But Jesus, as He was always wont to do, yanks the rug from underneath their self-righteous assumptions and He tells this story. And they were watching to catch Jesus. You see, if you read the wider context, they wanted to nail Him. They wanted to get Him because He was growing it with increasing popularity and he was a threat to the religious system and they were watching carefully to catch him in some violation of their Sabbath laws. You see, their religious culture was filled with all kinds of rules and laws. And if you did any work, you were not observing the Sabbath. You were breaking one of the laws of Moses. I was reminded of that and I think I've shared this story before 
But when we visited the Holy Land some years ago and we stayed in the fabulous King David Hotel in New Jerusalem, and we happened to be there over a Sabbath, and I was taken back by just how careful and meticulous they had thought through uh, this whole Sabbath rule and principle so that a good Jew would not have to work on the Sabbath. For you see, in the King David, in this posh, marble-laden lobby, there were Sabbath elevators, that's what they called them. And one of the elevators had over it the word even, and the other elevator had over it the word odd. And as we learned, I inquired of what this was all about, that on the Sabbath, since it, it is against Jewish law to do any work, including pressing the elevator button, that in order to get to your room, you went either to the even elevator or the odd elevator, if you were on floors 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, or 3, 5, 7, 9, 11, you chose which elevator you'd go to. You wouldn't have, have to press the button. And when you got inside, you would not have to press which floor you want to because it automatically stopped at the even floors or the odd floors. Because to press the button was to work and to violate the Sabbath rule. That was the kind of culture in Jesus' day. And the Pharisees wanted to catch him and do him in. And so there was this man, whether he was there planted by the Pharisees, who was suffering an illness, there was this man who apparently had dropsy, and Jesus boldly heals him, despite the fact that healing anyone on the Sabbath was against Jewish law. And he heals him. And he defied the Pharisees. And next, as you read on in chapter 14, verses 7 through 11, you find these proud, prominent men picking places of honor, picking the best seats with the biggest helping of salad that had already been laid out. And then he delivers his pointed message about the need for humility. And in response to that, you have to believe that these prominent men were humiliated. And then finally, as if the tension weren't great enough already, Jesus tells the host that he had invited the wrong guests altogether. He says, you shouldn't have invited people that can pay you back. These aren't the people that should have been on your guest list. No, you should have invited people that can't pay you back. When you have them for dinner, they aren't rich enough to be able to even provide a dinner to return the favor. You invited the wrong people. Jesus says. And so there's a lot of tension in the room. You can cut it with a knife. And all of a sudden, one of the men there, he remains nameless. But in order to cut some of that tension, one of the guests exclaim in verse 15, Blessed is everyone who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And everybody just kind of perked up and it felt like a tension reliever and everybody thought, ah, we can all agree with that. Blessed is everyone who shall eat in the kingdom of God. Speaking about the great marriage, according to Jewish custom, the great marriage supper that would take place. And the speaker probably thought that both Jesus and all the guests would agree with this statement that could not be disagreed upon. Everybody around the table would probably chime in and say, Amen, like a good Baptist. Amen. Preach it, brother. But Jesus didn't want to pass up the opportunity to 
take the scalpel and go a bit deeper. And he was quick to correct the wrong ideas that they had. And he told them this story about the great dinner and about assuming that it would only be Jews and not just any Jews, but Pharisees who would be in the kingdom of God. You see, they saw themselves a few notches above everybody else. They thought they were better than everyone else. And Jesus shows them that many of them would not, would in fact, even though they assumed they would be, Jesus shows them that they would not be in the kingdom because they were refusing this gracious invitation of the Lord. To their great surprise, many who assumed would not be in the kingdom were in fact going to be in the kingdom because they responded to God's gracious invitation. And in chapter 13 and verse 30, we learn that in God's kingdom, things are set on their heads. Things are topsy-turvy. The last will be first, says Jesus. And the first will be, boy, isn't that counterintuitive, will be last in this coming kingdom. And so the answer to the question, who will be at God's final banquet in the kingdom, is simple. Those who will be in the kingdom are those who respond affirmatively to God's gracious invitation. This parable is all about invitation and listening to the inviting voice of the Spirit and your response to the voice of God. And it seems to me that as I read the parable, there are at least four places that one could fit themselves into this story. I think it's important for us to enter into the story. And so it seems to me that there are four places that you could fit into this story. Either you can relate and identify with the generous master who hosts this great banquet and extends gracious invitation to many people to come and dine, or you could enter into the story and identify most closely with those who offer excuses and renege on their RSVPs. Or you could relate most closely with the faithful servant who does just exactly what the master has ordered and executes his master's instructions with exact precision. Or you could identify with the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. And so over these weeks of my study of Jesus' parables, I continue to come back and look at this and say, so who do you, Crocker, most relate to here? The fourth. More and more I'm realizing in a very real and profound way and identify with in this story, the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Because more and more I realize that I have absolutely no right to be in God's family. No right whatsoever. I have no right to be called as an honored guest at his table. I have come to the conclusion, frankly, that And it is to my amazement, I have come to the conclusion that it is amazing to me that anyone would love me at all. 
especially after hearing my brother preach last week, that my brother, that my brother would love me at all. Let's admit it. If we were truly honest, which we aren't often, and if we were truly transparent, which we don't do too well, we'd have to admit that most of us in this room are self-centered egotists that are hard to get along with. We are moody. We are what, what one of my friends calls sometimey, which means sometimes you're up and sometimes you're down. We're fragile, we're easily offended, we got a chip on our shoulder, we're lonely, we're needy for love. Most of us are petty and small. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? <laughs> we're desperately insecure, and when it's all said and done, it's rather amazing that not only is it amazing that God would love somebody like me, but it's amazing that anybody, anybody would love anybody, not just God, that anybody would love any of us. At all. But the good news of Christ's gospel is this. Receive it as good news. That the one who knows me best loves me the most. And though you and I have no right to be in the family, no right to sit at God's table, there is one who has shown His extraordinary mercy and His superabundant grace. And He has not only invited me to come, but He seats me in a place of honor and He gives me His name and He adopts me into His family and He says, this is one of mine. And I come here not by birthright. I come here not because I've earned it or I deserve it. But it's all about grace. God, who is rich in mercy, has brought you and me to His family. When we were lame and crippled, when we were spiritually blind, when we were, as Paul says in his epistle to the Romans, still in our sins, Christ died for the ungodly. That's you and me. And I am here today as a witness to that glorious Gospel. And I want you to know that I'm in the family because of grace. I'm at the table because of Jesus Christ. And there are times, my friend, and they seem to increase as I get older, there are times when I'm just overwhelmed by the thought and the knowledge that not only am I forgiven, but moreover, I've been adopted into the family of God. When I was a young minister about Matt's age, I served under a pastor, Bob Wallace, in Titusville, Pennsylvania. And Bob, Bob was a, a gifted evangelist. And he just really knew how to create an atmosphere of worship. And, and Bob, every Sunday, would, at some point in the service, have us join together in singing, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I don't think I appreciated it, the depth of the meaning of that when I was young. But the older I get and the more I become aware of what my children call dad's idiosyncrasies, I really am glad I'm in the family. God's family. And a recipient of His grace. My point this morning is, is simply this. I find it absolutely astonishing 
that a holy God like you and I serve has allowed a snotty-nosed kid from a backwater town to not only be in the family of God, but also has given me the great privilege of going out into the streets and the alleys and the highways and the byways to compel others to hear this gracious invitation to come in. The invitation is a free one. The servant in Jesus' story was not selling tickets for admission. It wasn't a fundraiser, a thousand dollar plate fundraiser for the kingdom. It wasn't a benefit supper where you kick in whatever you feel led to give. It wasn't even a kingdom potluck where you bring a main dish and a green bean casserole. The master says, all you need to do is just come as you are. Crippled. Lame. Blind, ne'er do well. Bring yourself and bring your appetite. And the Master says, and I will feed you so that you will never hunger again. And this feast is totally free because the host has already picked up the tab. And we eat at his expense. This is the beautiful thing about the gospel invitation. And yet I find it's probably the most difficult thing for us to accept. We want to contribute something. We want to do something. We want to bring something to the table. We, we think that if we can offer something in exchange for the meal, that we'll feel better about it. But to come to the table and eat freely is an affront to our dignity and our pride. Good people don't do that. Good people bring something when they're a guest. R.C. Sproul, noted theologian, speaks to this issue when he writes, Perhaps the most difficult task for us to perform is to rely on God's grace and God's grace alone for our salvation. It is difficult for our pride to rest on grace. Grace is for other people, beggars. We don't want to live by a heavenly welfare system. We want to earn our way and atone for our own sins. We like to think that we will go to heaven because we deserve to be there. But there's only one way that God offers this salvation. He pays for it all. And all you can do is come and receive it freely. Any other way would bring glory to man. But God's way brings all the glory to Jesus. And when you come to this banquet table of Christ, He doesn't offer up just a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. He gives you the works. Biggie size. Because He's the fountain of living water. And you will never thirst again. 
He gives you the indwelling Holy Spirit when you say yes to His invitation. And He will replace your anxiety with peace. He will replace your depression with joy. He will give you power to overcome your besetting sins. And He will give you wisdom to make the right decisions in this pilgrim journey. When you say yes to God and accept His gracious invitation, you have fellowship with Him every day. And the promise... The promise of a place that He's preparing for you in which you will dwell with Him for all of eternity. What a wonderful invitation. And with that kind of offer, you're probably thinking to yourself, how can anyone refuse? But Jesus' parable clearly warns that some do refuse. It sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? It is good, and it's also true, according to Jesus. The main catch is, though, that you have to stop and see that you have no right to be in the family, that you are just a worthless bum, and that spiritually you have nothing to commend to God. It's not a, here I am, Jesus, aren't you so glad I came? But instead, it's a coming to God and saying, I'm not worthy. I don't deserve this. I need your mercy and your grace. May we never lose sight of that. It's all of God's free grace. And isn't it the marvelous invitation of God that led Augustus' top lady to write these now famous words, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked I, I come to thee for dress. Helpless I, I look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior. Wash me. Or I die. Jesus is saying to each one who will listen, no matter how great your sins, come, for I have prepared everything you need to be saved from God's judgment. I have prepared everything that you need to dine with me for all eternity. Yes, there's no question about it. You and I have no right to be in the family. But praise God, because of Jesus Christ and His obedience to the Father's plan, you and I have been invited as honored guests. Have you heard? Or are you now hearing the gracious invitation of God to come? Have you said? Or are you now saying, Yes, Lord, I will come. I will come. Let's pray.
Lord, I am not worthy the least of your favor. You, by your grace and mercy, rescued me when I was afar off, rebelling against you, walking in my own self-centered ways. And yet, Lord, you reached out so graciously to me and picked me up. You heard my cry, the groan of my soul. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry from the waters, lifted me, now safe am I. Love lifted me, love lifted me when nothing else could help. Love lifted me. Thank you, Lord, for your amazing love, your super abundant grace, and your steadfast mercies. All praise and honor go to you, Lord, because it's not about us. It's all about you. In Jesus' name we pray.